Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio, 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston, and we're located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca research. In this episode, I'll be discussing some of Dr. Lisa Gunther's research in critical prison studies. Let me provide a little biographical background on Dr. Gunther. Dr. Lisa Gunther is the Queen's National Scholar in Political Philosophy and Critical Prison Studies, jointly appointed in the Department of Philosophy and the Cultural Studies Program. Dr. Gunther's research focuses on the intersection of phenomenology, political philosophy, and critical prison studies with further specializations in feminism and philosophy of race. She is a public philosopher, and her work has been published both in academic journals and in media outlets, including the New York Times and CBC Ideas. She's the author of the renowned 2013 book, Solitary Confinement, Social Death and Its Afterlives, and is currently working on a book about incarceration, reproductive politics, and settler colonialism in Canada, Australia, and the United States. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for being on Blind Date with Knowledge. Hi, thank you for having me. Let's begin our conversation by discussing the death penalty in the United States. I'm going to quote from the abstract uh, to your most recent project, On Pain of Death, the Grotesque Sovereignty of the U.S. Death Penalty. The United States is the only Western democratic nation to practice capital punishment in the 21st century. Lethal injection was introduced in the late 1970s as a more palatable alternative to brutal methods of execution, such as electrocution, hanging, and firing squads. Today, executions are staged as quasi-medical procedure in which the inmate patient is put to sleep and put to death on a gurney, hooked up to an IV machine, sometimes with the direct participation of medical professionals such as anesthesiologists. Medical knowledge and authority is both, both invoked to justify the practice of lethal injection and also strictly limited in its capacity to critique or even optimize this practice. So, Lisa, let's, uh, let's have you talk a little bit about this medical aspect. How effective is this? It doesn't sound like it's very effective. Uh, and, and how does that really uh, uh, connect with the, the argument that this approach is humane? Well, it really depends on what you think the performance should be effective for. So if you are looking for an effective way to kill people, then uh, this is not an effective way. Um, There are more botched executions through lethal injection than there are through other methods of execution. And so if you just wanted an effective way for the state to kill people, then the firing squad would actually be that. It has the lowest number of botched executions. The thing about a firing squad in a democratic nation is that it has a kind of association with totalitarian regimes that a lot of people don't like. and But maybe surprisingly, a lot of people who support the death penalty are quite happy with the brutality of 
uh, of more physical, more outright forms of execution. And so they're not very happy with lethal injection as a very quiet, private, non-spectacular form of execution. But if your goal is to create a legal firewall between um, the Constitution, which forbids cruel and unusual punishment, and state execution, which arguably involves cruel and unusual punishment, then the medical involvement and, and in a way the medical staging of executions is quite effective. It has been effective in the Supreme Court for allowing states to continue to execute people, even if there are high rates of botched executions, and even if there is a very strong chance, given the way that the lethal injection protocol works, through first an anesthetic, then a paralytic that paralyzes your entire body and forecloses the possibility of expressing your pain or your um, the failure of the anesthetic to reach its required depth, um, and then a an electrolyte that causes a massive heart attack, which in itself, without sufficient anesthetic depth, would be incredibly painful. So given the way that that lethal inje injection protocol has been standardized and the way that the paralytic drug really creates a black box where it's impossible to know if someone is experiencing pain during execution because you've removed their capacity to express pain either verbally or through gestures. There's just a very high level, a high degree of likelihood that at least some people who are being executed are experiencing excruciating pain. And so the involvement of medical apparatuses and medical technicians, uh, or even just in a way medical performances, helps to create the staging for a quiet, um, non-dramatic medical procedure that I think distorts or hides what's really going on here, which is the state is committing homicide against right. uh, one of its citizens. I'd like to talk, have you talk a little bit more about that aspect of the staging and the ethicality of lethal injection. But I'm, I'm still stuck on this idea of effectiveness. And you said, okay, there's a drug that, that basically uh, uh, removes the person's ability to gesture and speak. Are there any other kind of intermediary electronic sensors that are applied to the individual that could indicate that there is some distress going on? Well, this is a really great question. So there was a Supreme Court case called Bayes v. Reese in which two Kentucky um, inmates on death row petitioned the courts to have some kind of EKG monitor used while they were being executed through lethal injection. So they weren't actually um, raising the constitutional and ethical issue of the death penalty in their case. They were accepting that the death penalty was constitutional after Furman v. Georgia and, uh, and Greg v. Georgia sorted that out. That's a whole other conversation. But uh, Bayes v. Reese asked for some kind of, if we're going to do this as a medical procedure, let's have... Uh, medical technology that will actually help to ensure that people are not executed while paralyzed and in excruciating pain. I can't imagine. They were denied yeah. that at, at the Supreme Court level. And the the just mind-boggling thing 
uh, that came out of that particular decision, for me at least, is that uh, liberal judges, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in particular, suggested, well, maybe we can have a low-cost alternative to the EKG monitor, which, f- from my perspective, is is a pretty minimal uh, expense. If the state wants to execute people, maybe they should buy an EKG monitor. But anyway, um, Ginsburg argued that maybe we could have something like a manual consciousness check where um, the person, the warden or whoever is uh, conducting the performance of the execution would um, flutter the eyelashes of the inmate, uh, whisper their name and jostle them to make, after the first drug, the anesthetic was administered to make sure that the anesthetic had taken effect. And then they would give the go ahead to give the paralytic, paralytic drug and then the drug to stop the heart. But imagine if if you were going to have an operation and this were the ritual, the uh, really kind of magical ritual um, that were that was being used to test the level of anesthetic uh, in your body. You would not accept that as a medical as a sound medical practice. No. Instead, it's kind of the uh, a a mime performance of uh, care and of uh, due diligence that precisely by providing the state a kind of way of bridging the gap between um, what is really a reasonable demand. If you're going to execute me, please make sure that I'm not in extreme pain while you do it. Well, on this topic of uh, given the, the sort of discrepancy between what is um, projected as happening with the legitimacy of this procedure with the, in contrast to what might be the actual grotesque, uh, brutal reality that someone is being, in essence, tortured and incapable of of expressing that. What's the position of the medical community on this? Uh, uh, it doesn't sound like they're fully involved. And as, as I was reading in the uh, introduction, they're also restricted in terms of how they could input. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so on the face of it, the involvement of medical professionals who have committed to the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, uh, their involvement in state execution, the putting to death of someone who uh, is not asking to be put to death for compa- on compassionate grounds, is uh, deeply unethical. Um, and every medical professional medical association in the United States has issued an ethics statement, whether it's like the American Association of American Medical Association, American Nursing Association, American Association of Anesthesiologists. They've all issued professional ethics statements forbidding the involvement of professionals in in their field in uh, executions. So, but that's not enforceable. And that is, in some ways, uh, a simplification of a difficult, a tangled ethical issue. So some medical professionals who are involved in executions argue that it's better that if, if the execution is going to happen, and if it's going to happen through lethal injection, 
then it's better that they are involved and do that properly than if uh, a correctional officer is given a needle and an IV and and maybe, you know, brief training, but isn't really uh, schooled in how to do that properly. Mm. And that's what happens in many states. So it, in comparatively few states, there is a kind of official policy of having medical professionals involved. Um, but I guess the strongest argument that professionals who are involved in executions make is that they are trying to do the least harm or given that right. harm is already going to be done, they're trying to mitigate the chance that this person will um, suffer extreme pain. Right. Now, the weird thing about that is that that the way that some doctors have justified their involvement in executions also kind of blurs the line between legal and medical discourses. So one doctor said, I really think of the the death sentence as a terminal diagnosis. This person has a terminal illness. The causes of the illness are not organic. It's not cancer. It's not, you know, some sort of disease. It's a, it's a legal uh, verdict and it's a death. It's a sentence from a court, but I'm going to treat that as a terminal illness and then treat basically what I'm doing is palliative care. Right. But I just think that's so demented yeah. because um, a a legal decision is different in kind from a an organic disease. I hear you. We can decide otherwise. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston, located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University research website at queensu.ca slash research. I'm going to close out uh, this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge by asking Lisa to kind of switch gears here and, and give us something a little bit, uh, I'm going to call it poetic, um, that kind of encapsulates the uh, area of research that she's involved in and some of the feelings that she has about her work? Um, so I, I was asked to think about something, a, a passage or a poem or an image that um, I come back to in my work and that inspires me. And that image is a painting by Donald Middlebrooks, who is someone that I worked with on Tennessee's death row. And it's actually the first painting that he ever did. He's about in his early 50s. And it, it, he calls the painting Midnight. And it's a black background with very stark, silvery white lines outlining a, a death row prison cell. And it's empty. And he called it midnight because in Tennessee they used to hold the executions at midnight. So the implication is that the person who used to inhabit that cell has been removed and taken to the death house and they're about to be executed. And so for me, the, this painting expresses both the gravity and the, the sort of simple horror of state execution. But it also expresses a kind of hope for a transformation or for uh, slipping through that space of tight confinement into a space in a world that could be otherwise. Because the way he's um, 
kind of manipulated the perspective on the cell. It has this really surreal kind of warped feeling and the the shower in the cell looks like a portal to another world. And that's the way Donald himself describes the painting. He sees his artistic practice, which began with that painting, as a kind of escape from the logic of the prison into a different way of relating to people and a different way of relating to himself. And so that's a painting that I come back to again and again in my work. Thank you, Lisa. That really personalizes and uh, gives me a strong feeling of, of your work. My guest in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge has been Dr. Lisa Gunther, the Queen's National Scholar in Political Philosophy and Critical Prison Studies in the Department of Philosophy and the Cultural Studies Program. If you have a question about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation with Lisa, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you very much for tuning in. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.